What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And today, building an employer of choice requires a fundamental shift in how we think about the employee and employer relationship. Part of that mindset shift involves moving away from the transactional activities of HR and being laser focused on becoming customer and employee centric. That is the secret to building an elite team, according to Justina Vachorik. Uh, assistant vice president at Lake Superior College. She's been in that role at Lake Superior for a few years. Prior to that role, she was at the Minnesota Department of Corrections and in the private sector working uh, as an HR professional for a number of years. She's got broad-based experience across the HR functions. She's provided leadership and strategic direction uh, at the college. She's involved in the development and in implementation of policies, procedures, recruitment, selection, onboarding efforts, employee engagement, and a partridge in a pear tree. So she's doing a lot in that role. She's tackled multiple initiatives at the organization, is deeply involved in labor relations, including ensuring compliance with the interpretation of collective bargaining agreements, managing leadership training and development, staff and faculty, professional development, and a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm not going to get into right here because that would take probably the whole length of the show that we have. Justina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty pumped to have your insight and input into this conversation. I think you're the one of the first, if not the first, HR exec from the community college domain that we will have on the show. I know that you are involved in a lot of stuff in your role. I I'd like you to get the listeners up to speed on anything that you feel is important that's going to add context to the discussion that we're going to have. Really important thing to understand is that in the community that I work in, we are state of Minnesota employers. So the agency that I work for is Minnesota State Colleges and Universities. And we are a collection of 33 state colleges and universities across the state of Minnesota that has gotten together to create an agency that has overall goals such as Equity 2030, policies and procedures, and a systems-wide approach to create consistency and equity across 33 different college campuses and universities in terms of what we're trying to strive for and providing higher education to our students. Within that, we have several different collective bargaining agreements that the employees of our colleges and universities fall within. And the ones that we work with are AFSCME MMA, and we have a several other plans as well. And within those collective bargaining agreements, we also have MSCF, which is our college faculty. And because I work at a community college, technical and community college, we have a different kind of a faculty contract. And each of those collective bargaining agreements set the terms and conditions of employment, such as pay, paid time off, leaves of absence, and benefits. So it's really interesting and difficult to navigate for different types of employment within our agency. 
in knowing that every different type of employment may have a different set of rules within their collective bargaining agreement. I've spent my entire career in the private sector. So when you look at being an HR leader in a union environment, what was the biggest adjustment that you had to make to effectively administer that population that has both union and non-union employees? The biggest change that I had to make was to, to make sure that I was taking into consideration the type of employment. Every single time a question came to me, I had to make sure to understand what collective bargaining agreement was applicable. And then I would have to review that particular collective bargaining agreement to make sure that I was working within the rules and the, the various articles within the collective bargaining agreement. But then also if the contract was silent, on the particular question, I would then have to approach our system-wide human resources team to understand if there was a system-wide approach, because sometimes the collective bargaining agreement is either vague or is silent on certain issues or questions. And so we have to make sure that we're applying things consistently across our campuses. And then if there wasn't a system-wide approach, then we look and see if there's a state statute or a policy or a procedure. So the shift from the private sector was that you can really apply a blanket approach to most of your employees when you're in the private sector, or if there isn't a policy, you can create one. When you step into state service, you have to make sure that you're abiding by all the applicable state statutes and policies and procedures, and that you're not incorrectly applying anything or giving advice that would go against the collective bargaining agreement because those are rights that our employees hold. One of the things that I'm curious about when you describe that, one, the, the, the process in the public sector seems much more methodical. I would have an issue in dealing with the pace of play because I'm a creature of the private sector and I'm used to going fast and I'm, you know, somebody that's from a startup environment. So that's even faster than a typical environment. So how did you adjust to the pace of play? I, I would say it, it was a very difficult shift for me coming from the private sector to the, the public sector. That's what we call ourselves as the public sector in that you're not used to so many materials that you need to reference before you can give an answer in the human resources field. You're a lot of times are able to just come up with something right away if you're in a smaller private sector community or you've been around long enough to be able to answer that question right off the cuff. So one of the things that I had to adjust immediately when I began in the private sector was let me get back to you. I really need to look into this to make sure that I'm giving you an answer that will be correct. It will provide the employee the highest benefit within their collective bargaining agreement and within the applicable contract or the policy or procedure that would also serve the needs of the organization. And I need to make sure that everything that we're doing is in compliance with all of those factors. So really great stuff. And I think your advice about taking a beat and landing on, let me get back to you. I think that's valuable in any context so that you're making sure that you're serving your audience or your customer well by giving them the most accurate piece of information. When you think about all of the things that you've done in your almost four years at Lake Superior, what's the accomplishment that you're most proud of to date? The accomplishment that I'm most proud of is incorporating the Equity 2030 goals into our human resources processes and in the employee life cycle overall. The overall Equity 2030 goal is to eliminate educational and equity gaps at every one of our campuses. And so I've really been able to take this time 
and incorporated here at Lake Superior College. Tell me a little bit more about why that initiative has been such a focus within your environment. The intention is to weave equity and inclusion into both the learning and the working environments. And the challenge, of course, is that we as a state entity have certain statutes that we must follow in our employment and with our student and educational side. We also have, again, our collective bargaining agreements and other policies and procedures that are fairly set forth. So we have to learn what we can do with that within the confines that we find ourselves in statutorily. So we can do that by creating a workforce that recognizes our changing student and our employee demographics and their needs. We can also focus on shifting our cultural competence by initiating inclusive hiring practices and improving our campus culture for, again, for our students and for our staff and faculty. But you mentioned something earlier where you said that part of this initiative is to embed it across the employee life cycle. And then you mentioned that some of the ways that this shows up has, it shows up in your recruitment and hiring practices. Tell me a little bit about some specific examples of how you're embedding equity and inclusion into the application process, into the hiring process. We're really in the early stages of this, but there's a lot of different things that we've started to do and that we are going to continue to do. So the very first thing that we did was we started looking at our policies and procedures to include our onboarding and our hiring policies to use inclusive language and eliminate any language that was creating a barrier for certain demographic groups, because that's not the intention. We, we really did a thorough scrub of language in our policies and procedures in our hiring materials, such as our position description, which is the same thing as a job description. We just call them position description. We scrubbed the min quals to see if there was any barriers that we were unintentionally putting up by having really high standards or really unattainable minimum qualifications. Then we also took a look at our interview questions and made sure that we were using inclusive language and asking specific equity, diversity, and inclusion questions to ensure that the staff that we're hiring has the same mindset that we do in order to meet our overall goal. One of the things that I'm unclear about, and maybe this is unique to Minnesota, but why was this such a focus for the organization and for you? In, in higher ed to take on? What were you seeing in the landscape? Aside from like the demographics changes, what were some of the signals that you saw that indicated that there was a problem and this was a way that uh, you could solve that problem? I think this is a very old problem that's not unique just to higher education. However, one of the ways that we can break barriers and become more diverse and equitable and inclusive is to provide access equitably across different demographics. So what we're saying is that everybody should have access to higher education. And that is our goal. And I think that mindset hopefully will carry over into other sectors, not just the public sector, but, but the private sector as well, in order to create equal opportunities for all. So I think we've been talking this talk for many years, and now this is walking the walk, right? So we're talking the talk and we want to walk the walk and we want to do the work. We want to bring equity and we want to be inclusive and we want to provide opportunities to all. So not to pile on to your plate, this is a pretty big initiative and you said you're pretty early on in the process, but when you look forward to 2024 and 2025, What's what are the what other moonshot are you planning on taking on that that's on your radar? So this is that's an interesting question. We were just talking about this as a campus leadership team with the president and the vice presidents across our specific 
institution like Superior College. And we've, we've deemed equity as something that we'd like to incorporate into our climate and our culture for our staff, faculty, and our students as what we're deeming as a lifestyle change. So if you think of it in terms of somebody who's going on a diet, research is showing that fad diets are not always successful. They go up and down. But if you make a lifestyle change and you choose to live a healthy lifestyle, that could make a difference. And so what we're trying to do, what our moonshot goal is, just to, to incorporate this and embed it into something that our faculty and staff and our students, they just do. It just is. It's something at Lake Superior College that doesn't have to be in a job description or a performance review. It's something that we live and breathe and walk and talk every day. I really like the focus that you have on making this an embedded part of the day-to-day of not only students, but faculty as well. How has that shown up in any changes that you've made to mission, vision, values, those sort of things? Because oftentimes it's a trickle down from that level down. That's a really good question. We did actually embed it into our mission. So Lake Superior College as its own entity is in its mission. It wants to serve students and the community that we live and work in and provide high value, accessible higher education in a supportive, inclusive environment to prepare the skilled workforce for the future. So that is our actual mission. And by starting with inclusivity and equity into our mission, then like you said, it can be a trickle-down effect. It can be part of our lifestyle and our culture. And when you come here, you know that this community is a safe place because we have embedded equity and inclusion into what we do. So we have it in our classrooms. We have it in our syllabus. We have it in our position descriptions. We have it in our day-to-day conversations and how we're speaking and the things that we're saying and the things that we're doing and the things that we're not doing and not saying. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is going to be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300-plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. I'll call out that if any organization is looking at making any, any wholesale transformation, you first have to start at the mission, vision, value stuff, because that should be the North Star. And then all of your actions are guided by whatever that North Star is. So I, I really like how everything's tied together there. You've been in leadership for a little while and you've been in HR for a while as well. When you think about all the different leadership myths and HR myths that are out there, what's the one myth that you wish would just go away? I very frequently hear that human resources is a barrier or that we hold processes up with what I've heard called red tape. So from my perspective, processes and procedures, statutes, 
things of that nature, collective bargaining agreements, have good intentions. They're there to protect. And essentially, they exist to ensure that there's no unfair practices and that there is equitable employment practices. So I do believe that those should be there. And sometimes that does clash a little bit with equity. And so we have to try to work within those. I wouldn't even say confines because, again, they're really there to ensure fair and equitable employment and practices and for our students. I would really like to dispel the myth that we hold any processes up and that we have red tape. I think what we're wanting to do is to partner and to say, hey, these are here for a reason. And here's how we can work within them. Here's how we can create equity, even with the statutes and collective bargaining agreements and policies and procedures that we have to follow. I opened the show when by mentioning that if you're looking to build an employer of choice, if you're looking to build an elite team, you need to reshift perspectives in terms of what the employee-employer relationship looks like. How is that relevant to the game-changing realization that you had that really helped you build elite teams? One of the things that we, what we've realized is that when you build a community where your staff and faculty or your employees overall feel like they have a voice, feel like they are getting all of the information that they need for their job, but they're also, their opinions matter, their work matters in the big grand picture of everything. They can actually physically see how their work is positively impacting our students or the organization. That's how you can create engagement and work. And when you're looking at bringing on new team members, it's important to understand that they're bringing in a new perspective and what they have to say should be valued and important and they should be in a working environment that they feel like they can bring information forward to improve processes and procedures. So how is that related to moving away from some of the transactional activities of HR and, and leadership? I think a lot of times we get stuck in the, here's why you, here's a list of reasons why you can't do that. Here's the no's. This is why it's a no. Instead of making decisions based on how can we make this a yes. Within all of the policies and procedures and systems and collective bargaining agreements, how can we make this particular idea yes? Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes it's a, okay, we can actually do it this way. So it's that constant conversation between the employees and administration and human resources. And it's the working together versus the immediate staff of an a no answer. So I want to pull on something that you just mentioned, and I'm going to paraphrase what you just said, and it's talking about being or having a yes mentality. I'd like you to spell out why having that yes mindset or yes mentality is important when you're thinking about your overall talent strategy and given sort of the broader economic conditions and broader employee landscape, why is having that yes mindset important? I tell the leadership that I work with and a lot of the hiring supervisors, we need prospective employees more than they need us. Our prospective employees are either gainfully employed or they're looking only because they're looking for more flexibility. Perhaps they're looking for a culture that they can feel comfortable in, like the one that we're trying to create here at Lake Superior College, that really values diversity and equity and inclusion. So we have to make sure that when we're out recruiting, that all of the things that we are trying to do 
is attracting the kind of talent that we want to bring in. So we have to match those two up. And it's really important for us in recruiting because nowadays uh, there's a lot of jobs and there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of flexibility. And we do offer as many opportunities for flexibility and things like remote work as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, our goal is to serve our students. So we do require faculty and staff to come on campus and be in person. So we have to work within what we can offer our prospective employees. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. And I've spent time on the talent acquisition side in an agency context. I think, I don't think this will surprise you when I say it. Throughout this conversation, we've been talking about embedding equity and inclusion and diversity into the employee life cycle. If I'm in talent acquisition, I'm dealing with a scenario where I can't find enough candidates for the roles that I have open. See, it would seem to some people that even looking at the talent landscape with a DEI lens, you're actually going to be looking at a much smaller pool than what you already have. So help, help bridge that gap. Why is that a misaligned perspective? So I also had this mindset when I began working in Minnesota State Colleges and Universities at a community and technical college. A very good colleague of mine who's devoted to equity, diversity, and inclusion as part of her role in Lake Superior College helped me understand that we need to change the things that we are doing in the way that we are attracting talent to get those diverse pools and that it has to be a priority. So if we're not getting those diverse candidate pools, we need to answer the why question because it's an easy, it's an easy thing to say we're not getting them. So without looking into it, then you're just stopping that conversation. So let's continue the conversation. Do you have verbiage in your posting that is disqualifying demographic? Are you limiting your candidate pool by the language that you're using or the qualifications that you're requiring? Are you limiting it because you're not posting it for long enough or you're not putting it on the right job boards? Or perhaps you're requiring an in-person interview and, and a person in that community doesn't have the ability to get to campus for an interview, but they could get to the, the job in the end. They just can't come right now. But if they got the job, they could make it there. So it's switching your mindset to understanding the why you're not getting those diverse candidate pools. And I can tell you when we started doing that, we did get more diverse candidate pools. We put a lot of work and effort into the verbiage that we were using, the language, changing where and how we were posting, putting specific things in our postings and providing opportunities a little bit more equitable. And we have been getting more diverse candidate pools. And I live and work in Duluth, Minnesota, which traditionally doesn't have a large demographic of diverse candidates. And it's cold. And it's cold. The, the part that I like about what you just said is being deliberate about doing a root cause analysis. It's not enough to say we don't have X. You need to keep asking why and then keep peeling it back until you find out, okay, what are the things that need to be reconstructed to turn that situation that you, you're experiencing into something more positive or something that's more aligned with your desired outcomes? I think what we've talked about so far has been really solid. I think one of the things that I'd be curious to uh, understand from your perspective is if other organizations and other leaders uh, especially in the community college context or higher ed context, are looking to embed principles of diversity, equity, inclusion into their employee life cycle. What are the things that you encountered 
that you wish you had a heads up on? I think because of my limited perspective in the experiences that I've had, it's been pointed out to me that certain processes or certain language does create a barrier where I didn't think that it did because it that was that particular minimum qualification, let's just say, was never a barrier for me or the fact that I have to come here, I have to drive to campus every day has never been a barrier for me. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a barrier for a qualified applicant who could do this job successfully and bring our organization to where we need to be it doesn't mean that isn't a barrier for them. So it was a surprise to me just because of my limited life experiences. So one of the things that I would encourage other individuals to do would be to listen to the people that are very well versed in the diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of how do we break down these barriers and why are they there? Are they necessary? And how do we be more inclusive? Because you might not even be aware that the things that you are doing or saying or placing in your job ads are in fact a barrier to finding a successful candidate in a diverse community. The element in your answer that I really like a lot, is it, it ties into being comfortable challenging your own biases. And I often say to, I, I get into these conversations on a regular occasion, you know, on a regular basis. And oftentimes what I'll say is exactly what you just said. Just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean it's not real. Just because you haven't experienced this doesn't mean it's not a barrier. So I think the ability to take a step back and realize that in most instances, you're probably some version of the exception versus the rule allows you the right lens to make these sort of changes. This has been a really good conversation. We've explained a lot about why this should be a focus for organization, what they should be looking at. I want to close the loop a little bit. And when you think about a listener at a similar type organization that wants to get started on this process. What are the two or three key things that they need to be focused on that's going to put them in a position to execute this? I think the very first place to start is do a little bit of research on biases. It's not shameful. It's just something that's embedded to all in all of us so that we have them, whether we know about them or that we don't know about them. It's based on our own life experiences, the way that we were brought up, where we were brought up, how we were brought up, our interactions with different types of people across different types of situations. Our biases are there. And the biggest thing that we need to do is understand that they're there and remove them from the hiring and onboarding process and in really in our practices in, in employment altogether. And it's really, it's once you start down that road, you'll understand that and be surprised maybe at that of some of the biases that you do have and how they could impact who you're hiring and who you're not hiring. And that could be a barrier. So that's the first step that I think people should take. The second step that I think everyone should do is look at what kind of minimum qualifications are you looking for? I understand that Everybody wants somebody to come in and sit down and do the job immediately. But is it necessary to have a bachelor's degree in this role? Is it necessary for them to have 10 years of experience? Could you hire in somebody who has little to no experience, who has less than a bachelor's degree or perhaps not even an associate's degree, but they could do the job? So really looking at what minimum qualifications really make sense for the job and what type of individual, do you actually need to do the job? And the third thing would be inclusive hiring practices in asking questions that include diversity, equity, and inclusion, really evaluating the answers that 
the individuals are giving to you? Because if they've not had any experience in that area, are they the type of people that you want in your organization? If the answer is no, that's okay. If the answer is yes, and you feel like you can bring them in and include them in and, and teach them and help them grow in that area, then that's okay too. It's just understanding what you're looking for in each position. If there are people listening that want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I am on LinkedIn, or you can actually find me right on the Lake Superior College website and my my data is public. So you can reach out to me via email or phone or contact me on LinkedIn. Really great stuff, Justina. I, I enjoyed you hanging out with us and sharing your insight. When I think about the conversation that we had, and I think some of this can be applied to any sort of broad initiative that you want to implement, there are three things that stand out. One, I think one of the elements that you talked about was the willingness to do a root cause analysis. You, you can't look at a problem and just sit with the problem saying, this isn't working. You have to do the work of peeling back the layers and understanding what's the foundational issue that exists that you need to work on taking away so that you can have a better outcome. So I think from a change management perspective, that is a really strong practice that everybody should be applying when they're looking at building an elite team. Another element that stood out in the conversation to me was the mindset of having a yes mentality. Oftentimes HR is viewed as an obstacle or as a blocker. So as practitioners, it's important to shift that mindset and perspective by taking the time and leveraging your resources to find how we can make something possible. Now, sometimes those things aren't possible. It just can't be done. But at least if you're taking a collaborative approach to get closer to a yes, you're at least debunking that myth that exists that HR is solely there to just get in the way of progress. So I think that was an important element that stood out to me. The last thing that I think uh, is worth calling out is your emphasis on language. And particularly the point that language matters, how you embed language in your position descriptions, in your job functions, in your hiring process, in your interviewing process, in your onboarding process, all of those things come into play when you're looking at your overall employee funnel or talent pipeline. If you're seeing issues in your talent pipeline where you don't have enough people in play, you might be well served by looking at the language that you're using to fill that funnel because there's probably something in there that's turning off uh, a potential candidate from even starting the process of engaging with you as an organization. So really strong stuff, Justina. I, I appreciate you sharing your insights with us. For those of you who have listened to the conversation so far, leave us a review and let us know uh, what you thought of it. Tune in next time where we'll have another leader joining us and sharing with us their game-changing realizations that help them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.